0: History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. We can take this Mark Twain quote as testimony to all those earlier events that now evoke the world of today. Another war, another energy crisis. What can we learn from the past? I'm your host, Åsa and this is High Grade. This is High
1: Grade. You think you're rich. Uh, But in reality, you're not rich.
0: The resource curse theory takes a short-run phenomenon and projects it to a long-run outcome. The most important drivers of investment are the quality of the resource,
1: the infrastructure
0: that's available, and the governance environment.
1: Industrial development accelerates the speed of social change.
0: Creative destruction, people losing, people winning.
1: What we need to fix is politics, not the resources.
0: Welcome to this Natural Resources podcast. In late February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine, and in a matter of days, the price of energy jumped. A passing glitch or a fundamental shift? How is this crisis reshaping the global energy agenda? To see amidst the fog of war, we have sought the help of a friend of high grade, a very clear thinker. Paul Stevens recently retired as Distinguished Fellow from Chatham House and is currently Emeritus Professor at the University of Dundee and a Distinguished Fellow at the Institute of Energy Economics in Japan. Paul, it's a pleasure to speak again.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Four years ago, we spoke in the context of falling energy prices. And back then, you explained that low prices were here to stay absent of political upheaval. Well, political upheaval is precisely what we've got, and the oil price jumped to historic highs. Paul, tell me, is this a glitch, or are we entering a new period of expensive energy? I think the point to
1: start with is to remind you that it's not just been the Ukraine that's been going on, but we've Mm. just come out of a COVID pandemic, yeah. And the two are very much linked mm. during the COVID pandemic prices of oil particularly went very low. And indeed in April, 2020 uh, the price of WTI actually went negative You mm. have to pay somebody to, to take it away. Mm. And so you've had a period of very low prices uh, because of the pandemic and because of the lockdowns. Now this has produced, consequences. The first consequence is that there's been a significant lack of investment Mm. in supply. But also, uh, more recently, there's been a sudden increase in demand Mm. as economies have come back online. And the result of this has been an extremely tight market. Now, Mm. if you then add to that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, then the prices shot up because of concerns over supply Uh, of of oil and gas. So the future, uh, we'll talk more about this in in a little while, is going to be much more volatile than Mm. it was. Uh, Mm. A lot will depend upon what happens in the Ukraine. And again, we'll come back and talk about that in more detail. Uh, But the reality is that we're coming out of two major events,
0: And I'd like to explore the implications um, and what this means for energy policy. Um, In the 70s, high oil price triggered a period of stagflation. For those that don't know, can you explain what stagflation is? Well, stagflation is a
1: situation where the economy is not growing, but prices are rising. Mm -hmm. So you have stagnation, but inflation at the same time. Do we face
0: that risk now?
1: No, I think it's very different today. Mm -hmm. Um, In the early 1970s, the world was in the middle of a global economic boom, and that was brought to a rude halt uh, by the oil price shocks, the first oil Mm -hmm. price shock, 73, 74, second oil price shock, 79, 80, uh, which in turn led to recession. Mm -hmm. Now, we're in a position today where the recession caused by COVID is ending, Mm -hmm. and we're sort of almost reverting to a classic cost-push inflation situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The difference, again, though, is I think governments, and particularly central banks, are a lot smarter than they were in the early 70s. And they've had the sort of the banking crisis of, 10 15 years ago to sort of practice how you get out of this hmm. so i don't see i don't see we're going to have a similar sort of story today
0: There have been rapid state interventions to try and contain prices. Um, Unthinkable last year, the U.S. rushed to lay down bridges with Venezuela and with Iran, for example. Um, Is the crisis forcing the West to bend foreign policy?
1: Yes, very, very much so. Uh, I mean, another good example... Uh, you mentioned Venezuela and Iran, but just look at the way Washington is now behaving with Saudi Arabia yeah. and Joe Biden desperately trying to mend fences, mm. having uh, been very rude about MBS and not wanting to have anything to do with him. He's now sort of uh, courting him almost mm-hmm. in a in, in, in a strange sort of way. Um, and the reason for this is very simple. Um, they're trying to marginalize... Uh, the loss of Russian oil and gas in anticipation of more serious sanctions. Because at the moment, um, oil and gas exports from Russia have been impeded, but they haven't actually been sanctioned. If you're going to do that, then you need to, build up or develop alternative sources of supply. And mm-hmm. you mentioned Venezuela. Iran is the obvious one. All yep. of a sudden, people are talking about the renewal of the nuclear agreements. Uh, and the reason for this is very simple. Iran can put a couple of million barrels a day into the markets in a very short space of time.
0: Is this weakening
1: the West? Yes, the sort of good news and bad news from that point of view. I mean, mm. in a way, it's weakening because we're now dancing to other people's tunes. Yep. Um, but having said that, um, there, is the, 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 there, are, there are sort of uh, options there to try and do something about it.
0: Mm-hmm. I recently read a tweet that put it perfectly In a month, we went from furious anti-fossil fuel slogans to subsidizing oil consumption. The much-predicted end of the oil era looks very distant again. Will the energy transition be another casualty of the war?
1: That's a very good question. Um, Mm. My short answer is to say no. Uh, I Mm. think, if anything, it's likely to speed up the energy transition. Because one of the consequences of both the COVID pandemic and the Ukraine is that energy security of supply has moved up the policy agenda in the Mm -hmm. West. Uh, Now, if security of supply is top of your list, then the solution to that lies largely in renewables, because renewables, Mm -hmm. small scale, low cost, they're ideal. As the policy switches towards security of supply, then more renewables are going to be used and this is going to speed up the transition. And of course, that is going to be reinforced as the price of fossil fuels is rising as well, as we've seen over the last few months. Mm -hmm. So I think the short answer is to say, no, it's not going to um, necessarily Uh, change the energy transition, it'll just speed it up. But it may take a while for that to happen. So, for example, uh, if you look at Europe, a short-term solution to the shortage of gas and oil Mm. is to use coal again, which is not good news. But on a short-term basis, this will help to solve some of the problems.
0: So a short-term solution for a long-term crisis... Absolutely. I
1: mean, Mm -hmm. the energy transition, which was going on well before the pandemic and the the war in Ukraine, was speeding up quite significantly, Mm -hmm. in large part because the cost of renewables was coming down dramatically as a result of technology and technological Mm. improvements. And that process, as I say, I think is going to continue when the COVID pandemic is gone as a pandemic uh, and irrespective of what happens in in Ukraine. So uh, the the, the short answer is no, it's not going to be another casualty of war.
0: The green energy transition has been mostly about reducing emissions. Um, Is this shifting the attention? Probably yes.
1: Security of energy supply was a big deal in the 1970s following the Arab oil embargo, the oil price shocks, etc., etc. But gradually it sort of moved off uh, the policy agenda uh, and other issues took over. Mm. But the the, the situation now is that energy security of supply really has shot back up the agenda. And this Mm. happened in the COVID pandemic as well, in part because of what the COVID pandemic was doing to things like supply chains. But obviously, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Mm. it really now is very much top of the agenda.
0: In this fast changing world, what a pleasure it is to find wise voices of reason. Paul Stevens is joining me to help us make sense of this troubled energy market and beyond. And where does this leave climate change? Is the energy crisis going to derail the commitments made? Um, in theory, no,
1: for the reasons I've just explained, that the, yeah. uh, the energy crisis will encourage the development of renewables. But I think it's worth pointing out that uh, it's already derailed. Mm-hmm. Um, governments are not taking it seriously, which is why you're starting to see um, popular action direct action, because the governments are just messing around with this. They're not taking it seriously at all. They're making lots of statements. There's a lot of hot air out there, but they're not translating it into, in, in, into policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this is serious because, uh, as I say, climate change commitments have already been derailed. I mm-hmm. mean, they're talking about 2.5, we'd be lucky to get to two degrees. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just not happening because governments are not taking it seriously.
0: And can they now hide behind the veil of, of energy security to push those commitments further back?
1: Absolutely. Because all of a sudden, uh, people are getting very concerned and upset about the higher cost of energy. And uh, people are saying, oh, well, it's the problem of all these renewables, which is silly, of course, because renewables have been coming down in cost. Mm -hmm. But if the popular view is that the situation is causing increased energy prices, then you're going to start seeing arguments saying, well, do we really need to uh, get rid of coal, uh, etc., etc.?
0: Do you think that in the end we can find the balance between energy security, climate change and consumer uh, prices? I'm sure we can if Mm -hmm.
1: governments are sensible, but unfortunately, for the most part, governments are not sensible. They're only Mm -hmm. looking to the next election. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're not concerned with the long term. There is no cost to delaying. And if a government is uncertain what to do, then delay is the default policy option.
0: As you alluded to earlier, despite the rhetoric and the sanctions, the West has continued to buy fossil fuels from Russia. Are Western consumers that dependent on Russian oil and gas?
1: It depends which Western consumers you're talking about. And I make a distinction here between Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and the rest of the European Union. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and the U.K. use very little uh, Russian oil and gas. Uh The EU uses a great deal of Russian oil and gas. But in a way, that's not relevance. What is relevance is the fact that oil is a global market. Mm. So if the price is very high because of shortage in the U.S. or the rest of the European Union, Mm. then it's high everywhere else. In other words, the threat is the macroeconomic consequence of very high prices. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the dependence is there but as I say, not necessarily in terms of barrels of oil or cubic meters of gas. Mm. I mean, for somewhere like the UK, for example, we actually don't know how much Russian gas comes in because gas molecules don't carry passports. (laughs) So once once the gas crosses into the EU, uh, nobody really has a clear idea of where it's likely to go. Um, So you can say that, yes, The West is dependent on Russian oil and gas, if not in a physical supply sense, but certainly in terms of a macroeconomic sense.
0: There's no better example than Germany.
1: Yeah, I mean, I never really understood German energy policy. If you run out of gas, the first thing that you stop using it for is manufacturing an industry Mm. The last thing you stop using it for is domestic heating. And Mm. the reason for that is technical. You cannot turn gas on and off because if you turn it off and you want to turn it back on, you have to have a gas engineer at every burner tip. Mm -hmm. To make sure that the gas has been switched off. Now, if you're a manufacturing plant, that's easy. But if you're talking about residential areas, it becomes a big deal. Mm -hmm. There was a famous, infamous study done in Britain in the early 1980s, when the then nationalized utility, British Gas, asked the question, what would happen if Birmingham... The main second city in the UK was cut Mm. off from gas supplies. How long would it take to reconnect? Mm. And the answer came back three years. Now, Mm. clearly, this is going to have enormous political implications um, if you start cutting off residential areas from gas supply. So uh, to me, it never made a great deal of sense. We then face the situation in the UK, for example, where they're now saying, OK, we'll solve the problem by building nuclear, yeah. which is a stupid idea. I mean, you're looking at, you're looking at plants that have a lead time of, of, of 15 to 20 years Mm. Uh, the latest the only really private sector nuclear plant that's come on stream recently was one in finland a few weeks ago that was that was 15 to 20 years late and Mm. god knows how much over budget it was so unfortunately the governments are not doing very well on this
0: we've now discussed european dependency on russian oil and gas on the flip side to what extent do fossil fuels underpin Russia's economy?
1: I think my short answer to that would be to say totally. Mm. Um, they're completely dependent on oil and gas exports. They don't have mm. much else to, uh, to be able to export. Mm. They're probably in the process of default on their debt. Um, mm. They're looking around for alternative buyers. But then I ask the question, you know, who is going to sign a long-term contract with Russia? Mm -hmm. for oil and gas in the present context. So Russia is going to end up with a lot of stranded assets. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, And of course, that's going to have very serious consequences um, for the domestic situation in Russia.
0: Mm. But some large countries like India are in fact increasing purchases from Russia.
1: Yes, certainly. Some India, you mentioned, are still Mm. buying Russian oil, but I make a couple of points. First of all, uh, they're one of the few countries that will be buying Russian oil. And secondly, they're probably playing a heavily discounted price Mm. uh, for Russia to make it worth them while to to actually do sub. Mm. Um, But who else is going to buy?
0: I will have to mention China. You don't think they will step up? Well,
1: they certainly will continue to buy Russian oil and Russian gas. But as I say, it's all going to be done at discounted prices. Otherwise, why would they do it? Now, okay, they're on terms of contract. We don't know what the terms of the gas contract are. Um, Mm. Oil, they're buying it sort of hand to mouth, I suspect. Mm. Uh, So, again, it means that that they're buying it at lower prices. So the oil and gas revenue that Russia is getting Um, is very vulnerable and very much under threat.
0: Mm. When we think of rent-seeking states, we tend to think of the Nigerias of the world. Is Russia a rent-seeking state?
1: Yeah, it's been dependent very much so on on the rent that is embodied in the oil price, Mm. Um, which comes from two sources. One is the sort of, Uh, What economists call producer surplus, which is the difference between what they have to pay and what they will pay, uh, Mm -hmm. and also supernormal profits rising from the manipulation of the market, more recently OPEC+. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, it is very much a rentier state with many of the characteristics of a rentier state, such Mm. as corruption.
0: Paul, last time we spoke, you warned that low oil price risked social unrest in producer nations. The irony today is that high oil prices risk social unrest in consumer nations. I'm interested in your historical perspective. How does this crisis end?
1: <laughs> That's the forty thousand million dollar question. I think <laughs> yeah, um, <indeed. laughs> a lot will depend on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. Mm. Now, my view, and I'm not an expert on these things, suggests it's probably going to be a long, drawn out process. Mm. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight, um, and it will continue. Um, but meanwhile. If the energy prices continue to stay high and all the evidence suggests they will, then eventually supply and demand will come to the rescue. Mm -hmm. So alternative suppliers will emerge. I mean, a good example is U.S. shale, which Mm -hmm. was wiped out by the fall in price as a result of the COVID pandemic, but is sowing signs of beginning to come back again. At the same Mm -hmm. time, demand is also going to respond to higher prices. So eventually the market will sort it out, but a lot will depend upon what happens to the war in Ukraine. And as I say, I don't know. I think it's probably going to be a long drawn out process.
0: And until we see that rebalancing of supply and demand, uh, is there a risk of, of social unrest? Yeah, I
1: think this is, this is likely to be true. I
0: mean, mm. people are
1: facing you know, a major crisis in terms of their cost of living, yeah, Um in the UK is a good example. People are saying, you know, do we heat the home or do we feed our kids? Mm. Now, if that builds up, then you're going to start to see a degree of social unrest. There's no question of that. The question is, what are the governments going to do about it? What can they do about it? Well, some of the governments were quite effective during the covid pandemic. Mm. But that effectiveness seems to have disappeared. So uh, it's difficult to know where we go from here, but I, it wouldn't surprise me to see a sort of a popular backlash, shall we mm-hmm. say, in 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 the West, particularly in in Europe, against what's going on.
0: For example, we saw the far right in the French elections.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think without the events of the last few months, I'm not sure Marine Le Pen would have got anywhere near uh, Mm. possibly being elected. If you look at the UK, uh, where the current government is incredibly unpopular for a variety of reasons, Mm. um, and we just have to wait to see how that is going to pan out.
0: If you could pass on advice to to governments, what would, would that be?
1: Well, the first thing I would pass on is to, for heaven's sake, start taking climate change seriously, Mm. uh, which they haven't been doing. Secondly, um, try and introduce policies to affect the lowest paid, the poor, Uh, give them some degree of protection, Mm. which to some extent they did during the COVID pandemic, during that recession. uh, But they do need to do more on that. Mm. Uh, And the other advice is for god's sake to invest in improving energy efficiency Mm. um which is really is the best is the the best the cheapest solution to the problem
0: paul thank you so much it's been a pleasure to talk to you again i enjoyed it and thank you for listening to this natural resources podcast The price of oil has spiraled on a combination of renewed demand and supply concerns. Covid recovery struggles on top of the Ukraine war have shaken the global economy, and the energy market in particular. For now, energy security has displaced climate change from center stage, although an accelerated shift to renewables will ultimately support both agendas. As we close this podcast, Paul left a new plead to government to step up and face the energy challenges head on. This podcast was done with support from the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development through BGR. Make sure to subscribe to our channel on whichever podcast platform you're using. Until next time, so long.